So, a sermon. Um, we're in the book of Philippians, and if you've been with us, um, we've been talking about these words every week, a new word that if we add to our vocabulary, it will help us to find joy in the midst of an anxious world. And the, the words that we've talked about so far are gratitude, um, purpose, unity, sacrifice, serve, and confidence. And so um, these are words, I believe, that if we begin to add to our vocabulary and how we interact and how we live our life, they will help us to have joy in the midst of an anxious world. And the word that I want to add this morning is the word belonging. The word belonging. Because I think there are two fundamental kind of metaphorical questions that we spend our life, and they, they, we spend our life at each life stage trying to re-answer these questions. The first is this, why am I here? And not necessarily here, here, sitting in a pew on Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., but like, why am I here on earth? Why do I exist in my job and my family? And that begins to change with each stage. As soon as you get it answered, why am I here as a parent? Your kids are grown up and now you're in this new life stage and you're trying to figure out how do you answer that question. Now the second question I think is equally important. It's where do I belong? Because all of us are searching for that sense of belonging. It's one of those kind of basic human needs that every one of us needs to have met. We need a place to belong, a place to feel loved and accepted and a part of something bigger than ourselves. And like I said, with the why am I here, this question changes with life stage too. Because when you have young kids, you find belonging with other people who have young kids, and as your kids get a little older, you find belonging with those people who have kids in that life stage. And it makes it so easy because there's these commonalities, these bonds between you and other people. And so with every life stage we find ourselves in, with every huge seismic shift in our culture, we're trying to answer those two questions because it gives us meaning. Paul is writing this letter, and we've said this through the entire series Remember, and you cannot lose sight of, this is not a systematic theology. This is not what you should believe. This is Paul writing a letter to a group of Christians in a specific city at a specific time in human history. So he's writing this letter trying to help them to follow Jesus in this crazy world. And for these Christians in the city of Philippi, they find themselves in transition because they've been a part of a city and a culture that looked a certain way, acted a certain way, behaved a certain way. And Paul comes to town, this traveling missionary, and he shares with them some good news, what he calls gospel. And they make the decision to change their life because they're going to believe in a new king named Jesus. And so they're in this transition where they're trying to figure out how do I live and act 
and treat people and interact with my world when I'm moving from this one world view to another world view, when I'm moving from life under one king's authority to life under a new king's authority. It's this life in transition. And I, I think most of us relate to it because there is this pull between both worlds. How, how do we live and act in this world as followers of Jesus who does not confess Jesus is king? And the reason it was so hard is because this world that they found themselves in, the world of Philippi, was ingrained in them. It's where they lived. It's where they grew up. It's what they knew. But I want you to understand just a little bit historically some context of what leads up to this point in the story. There's a guy named Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar is a general in the Roman army. And this is before Rome is an empire. And he wins this decisive battle of a civil war in this Roman Republic. And he becomes the new kind of ruler of this Republic. And things are going really well until 44 B.C. when these two guys named Brutus and Cassius plot against Caesar and have him assassinated. And so in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar is assassinated. And his nephew named Octavian teams up with a guy named Antony, Mark Antony. And they um, have a second civil war between these two sides. And here's the crazy thing. You're never going to guess what the conflict that causes the civil war in this situation. It's two political parties not agreeing with one another. <laughs> I know, crazy, right? Like, so hard to believe and imagine what that would be like. But there are these two political parties that don't see eye to eye, and because of it there is a civil war, and Octavian, the nephew of Julius Caesar, wants to avenge his uncle's death. And so they go to battle against Brutus and Cassius. And Octavian and Mark Antony win the war. And he becomes the new ruler of this young Roman Republic. And until 32 BC, it operates simply under his control until the last war. But what's so amazing is here, Octavian and Antony and Brutus and Cassius have this decisive battle during the Civil War that happens in 42 BC. And the battle is called the Battle of Philippi. Over 200,000 soldiers fought in this war. And so when the battle is won, and Octavian and Antony are left standing, their left is the rulers. There's another division. And Antony goes with Cleopatra in Egypt until all that's left is Octavian who in 14 B.C. names himself Augustus Caesar, ruler of the Roman Empire. So he comes to power through these civil wars, through, through killing people 
and taking power, and he stands on the throne, and he declares that his cosmic hour has come and that he is now God of the world. So why does that matter? Why is that important to Philippi? Philippi was where this decisive battle was fought. Think about the implications of it. Because after the battle, soldiers begin to settle down. They form this colony. And where is their allegiance? Their allegiance goes to this new ruler, Octavian, Augustus Caesar. And if anyone decides to mess with Philippi, guess who's going to jump across the pond and save the day? Guess who their savior is? Guess who the one who's going to protect them and strengthen them is? It's Augustus. And because those soldiers settled down in that, family, in that, that um, area in Philippi, think about how patriotic it would be. Because your grandfather fought in that decisive battle. Your, your father served in that army. And so all allegiance and all imagery and all the icons were about Julius Caesar's nephew, Augustus. And this battle occurs about a hundred years before Paul arrives on the scene. Think how entrenched they were now in this Roman world, in this Roman culture. And their citizenship was all centered around Rome. We are citizens of Rome. And so you have this church in Philippi who is torn, who's trying to live between the two. Are we, we citizens under King Caesar? Or are we citizens under King Jesus? Which way do we go? Where do we lean? They're torn. And the problem is with so many examples... The question is, who do you follow? With so many examples of how to live in Rome, who do you follow? And Paul writes this in his letter, starting in verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have had us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. We're, we're torn. We're, we're not sure who to follow. And Paul steps up and he writes this letter and he says, follow me. At another point in one of his letters, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. But he says, follow me and follow those of us who live as we do. Just, just a couple of verses earlier, he calls these people perfect. But, but he's not saying perfect in the sense of moral purity. He's saying being perfected. They're becoming more and more mature, is the word the NIV and several other translations use. They're becoming more mature. Follow those people who have been doing this for a while, who have been walking with Jesus, trying to live like him in the midst of this empire that pulls us in different directions. And he goes on to say in verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Why, why does he say it with tears? I, I think the reason he says it with tears is because I think there are some of those both on the inside of the church and those on the outside who are living as enemies. I, I think it's because of those on the inside. And here's the deal. I don't think any of them are doing it on purpose. But there is this pull between two competing kingdoms that asks the question, where does your allegiance belong? There, there is this pull for your allegiance, for your heart, for your mind, for your soul between two kingdoms. And there are some who say they're followers of Jesus. And they're so easily pulled toward the kingdom of Rome. Who struggle with that tension. But what they understand, and I think it's something that we fail to miss at times, is the cost of following Jesus comes at a great cost. It always has. It has always come at a great cost to follow Jesus. So, this city that Paul is writing the letter to has been entrenched in the middle of civil wars and battles being fought over people's allegiance. And Jesus comes along and he says, There is a new path to peace. There, there is a different way to peace than civil war. And, and you see the two parties divided and fighting and bickering that leads to this battle. And I wonder at times if we're not in the midst of another civil war. But the only reason we don't recognize it as one is because it is digital. Because the battleground is no longer the solid ground. It's in the airwaves. It's on our TV screens. It's on our tablets. It's in the palm of our hand. It's through Fox News and CNN. It's through Facebook and Twitter. And our weapons are no longer sword and spear, but they're social media and thumbs typing as fast as they can on our keyboards and voices projecting to millions of homes across our world. That we're so entrenched in a war that's happening right before our eyes. We don't even realize it because there's no blood and guts being spilled. And it's so easy to be seduced into the battle, to be lured in, and to find yourself in the tension between the two sides. To fight a battle that needs not be fought. And I keep hearing 
people say over and over, this country needs Jesus, which I would agree and say, yes, amen. But I would also say we cannot declare this country needs Jesus until the people of Jesus begin imitating Him in their everyday life. It's easy to stand and say, this is what our world needs. But your voice is silenced if you don't live out the calling of Jesus in your life. I want to talk to our older members for a few moments. Those of you who have been around a little while. Because... For, for so many of you, you've been following Jesus for a really long time. And you've been trying to live out the gospel. But what I keep hearing from so many of our older people, those who've been following Jesus 20, 30, 40 years, those who Paul would call the more mature, is your job right now is to lead the way. It's to lead the way, pointing us all back to Jesus. You are the ones who are supposed to be saying, hey, don't forget the tomb is still empty. Don't forget, because we've been through these moments before. Don't forget that Jesus is still king and that your allegiance belongs to him. Stop listening to Fox News and believe the good news. Allow it to be the filter through which you see the world. That there is a better way. Because Jesus does not show up in this world and try to convince people and argue with people and persuade people and trick people into being a part of the kingdom. He simply says there is a different way that the world works and you are invited to be a part of it. It's not this persuasive, argumentative, fighting and bickering. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, hey, are you tired of the battles? Are you tired of the two sides? There is a better way. Come, follow me. And as the older generation, we need you now more than ever to stand in the middle and say, we have seen this before and it does not work. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. I know what both sides promise. I know what they say, but Jesus is the way. And here's the truth. The election that's going to happen in a few weeks is up for grabs. There may, there may not be someone new sitting in that seat at the White House. Let me tell you what's not up for grabs. The kingdom of God coming to earth as it is in heaven. Let me tell you what's not up for grabs. The church, who Jesus says no powers will ever prevail or stand against it. 
Let me tell you what also up for grabs. Your witness. Your ability to share Jesus with people. Because of the way you act, talk, and behave in the middle of conflict. Because at the end of things, here, here's the, 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 the stark reality. At the end of things, someone's going to stand up over your coffin, and they're going to tell your story. Have you ever been to one of those funerals where you didn't really know the person, and you listen to people who knew them get up there and talk about them, and you walk away thinking, I really wish I had known them better. And maybe that's just me as a, a minister who's at funerals for everyone, and a lot of times I don't know real well. But someone's going to tell your story. And here's my, my, my hunch, that when someone tells your story, 2020 is going to be a small blip, maybe a sentence or two of your story. And there are some people right now that are allowing what's going on in our nation, in our world, to be the dominant story, and it is wrecking your witness as followers of Jesus. Because it is fueled by anxiety, and the power for anxiety comes from two small words, what if. Because you take what if out and anxiety is gone. Because all of your anxiety is based off those two simple words, what if. What if they win the election? What, what if they lose the election? What if my kids turn out? What, what if, what if, what if, what if? And all you do is worry about tomorrow. It is impossible to have joy today if you're always worried about what if tomorrow. And Paul is calling us back and reminding us of our belonging. He's reminding you that there is a bigger story that we're telling. And if you'll remember, Paul says in Ephesians that, that Jesus has broken down some walls of hostility. He's dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles. These ethnic, these relational, these um, religious walls. He's broken them down. And he's made it possible for everyone to come and be one. And I wonder at times if we're not spending all of our energy building back the walls that Jesus has already broken down, trying to find division, trying to find… because ultimately, here's what sin does. Sin breaks down relationship. What's the problem with sin? Sin breaks down relationship. It breaks down relationship between you and God and it breaks down relationship between you and other people. It causes division. It causes divide. That, that is the power of sin. And so when we say our world is broken, it's because it is filled with sin. And it is because sin has broken down relationship between us and God and us and everyone else. So then how do we fix the problem? How do we fix the sin problem? Well, Paul goes on. In verse 19, he says this. 
their destruction, or their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. So so the question is, their God is their stomach. It doesn't seem to really fit. Is he talking about people who just like to eat a lot? Back several years ago, you may have seen this documentary. It was called Supersize Me. And it's the story of this guy who decides he's going to spend 30 days of his life, the next 30 days of his life, eating McDonald's every single day. He is a healthy man. All of his vitals are perfect. His blood tests are perfect. Everything in his life, you would look and say, he is a great physical specimen. He runs, he works out, he does all these things. And so the next 30 days, all he's going to eat is McDonald's, three meals a day. And the only rule is when he goes through the drive-thru or when he goes to the counter, if they ask, do you want to supersize it, you have to say yes. And so for 30 days, he eats everything on McDonald's menu. And he continues to follow up with the doctor along the way, every, these little periodic check-ins, until day 22. And his doctor stops him, and he says, if you continue to eat this every single day for the full 30 days, now remember, He's got eight days left. If you finish this, you will most likely die. Because his liver was starting to pickle. And he was in critical, a critical state where they had to make a decision whether or not to abort the project. And I think there's such a valuable, valuable truth, and it's what Paul is getting at. What you consume will consume you. What you consume will consume you. If you eat McDonald's every day for 30 days, it's going to consume you. Your your parents told you this growing up. If you watch those movies or you listen to that music, it will start to become how you act and talk and behave. What you consume will consume you. And what Paul wants you to understand, their God is their stomach. He's not just talking about this, this but really the guts of yourself, the, the soul, your urges, your appetites. Your appetites that constantly leave you craving. right? Because we have our appetites for food. We, we know that. Right? After you get done with church this morning, those appetites are going to be calling and you're going to be at a restaurant or you're going to be at your house and you're going to be trying to satisfy those appetites. We have appetites for food. There's appetites for sex. There's appetites for power. There's appetites for wealth. There, there's appetites to be seen or to be envied. We, we actually want people to look at us and be a little jealous for power, for wealth. Now, here, here's the problem with appetites. Appetites know one word, and it's more. Anyone have teenagers? Young, young kids? Appetites know one word, more. And, and here's the thing. 
I've never talked to someone who went through an affair and said, you know, I, I just woke up one morning and I decided I was going to have an affair. No. It was those appetites and those urges that led them along that path. I would imagine someone who's been put in jail for child pornography didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to go look at children online. I would imagine it began with these simple urges, these appetites. People who are have taken millions and millions of dollars from people in their company, like Enron and things like that, I would imagine didn't wake up one day saying, you know what, I think today is the day I'm going to go try to steal everything out of their pension. But it happened a little bit more and more by the way. Go back to verse 19 for me, Zach. He says this, their destiny is destruction. Why? Because all they're doing is following their appetites. And and they're letting what they consume, consume them. So their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. That's all they see. And your ability or inability to control those appetites will directly impact the trajectory of your life. Your ability or inability to control those appetites will directly affect the trajectory of your life. So my question for everyone, what are you consuming right now? What what are you putting in? Do you spend your days on Facebook? Do you you spend your day watching Fox News or CNN? Do, Do you find yourself in that tension of what do I do and what do I believe and where do I go? Because here's the the honest truth. There are good things in the Republican Party, and there are bad things. And there are good things in the Democratic Party, and there are bad things. And there are policies that align much more with the kingdom and the Republican Party, and there are also policies that don't align as much with the kingdom and the Republican Party. And there are policies in the Democratic Party that align more with the kingdom of God, and there are also policies that don't align as much with the kingdom of God. And what I can tell you, I don't don't know a lot, I'm not a smart, smart guy, what I do know is this, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, George Bush, Obama, Reagan, I mean, whoever you want to put in the the blank, are not the hope of the world. They are not the hope for this nation. Can they help our nation get to a better place? Possibly. But Jesus is trying to help us get to a different world. By creating the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven, by his people living out his message every day. Do you want hope? It is found in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not found in a political party. 
And if your filter is Fox News, I promise you joy will not overwhelm your life. If your filter is CNN or Facebook or Twitter, joy will not be a part of your life because all you're going to hear is the what ifs and all it will produce is anxiety and all it will do is cause division. And to the older generation I talk to, we need you now more than ever to stand up and say, no, look at Jesus. Look to Jesus because he is the hope and he is the answer. There's this powerful vision that that John has in Revelation as he finds himself before the throne and he's looking everywhere for someone to open the scroll and he says there's no one that we can find to open the scroll. And then the angel turns and points and says, look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah And John turns expecting to see this roaring lion standing on the throne ready to take control and have power over everything. And when John turns and looks, he doesn't see a lion. But he sees a lamb. And the lamb looks like it's been slain. But yet somehow it's still alive. That, that is our hope. Our hope is that the tomb is still empty. Our hope is that Jesus offers an alternative to both empires. That Jesus comes and says, I want to give you new life. And he doesn't try to coerce people or persuade people. He just comes and stands in the middle of the groups and says, there is a better way. There's a different way. To the more mature, we need you right now, more than ever, pointing us back to King Jesus. Because just like Grayson read just a few moments ago, they proclaim, not Caesar is Lord, but King Jesus because they believed. They believed there was a better way to live. So Paul says this to these citizens in verse 20. We can go here. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our citizenship, it's where we get the word politics. Our citizenship is in heaven. What he does not mean is in heaven off someday in the future at some point. 
What he does mean is there is a new world here in the midst of this world that is passing away that you are called to be a part of and called to build. And it is a world that will not end, that will go on and on and on. It is this world that is here and now, but not yet. This world that that Jesus has brought into existence through his death and resurrection, and a world that you are invited to live as a part of. Not through coercion, not through arguing, but just simply the invitation. There is a different way that leads to life, and only a few find it. What is it right now? that's consuming you. Because the beautiful thing about these citizens is these citizens were citizens in Rome, but they did not consider that their citizenship because they were part of a different world. And they were living, waiting for Jesus to come back because the the promise is that when Christ returns, that that world that is not quite yet here, but is being built by His people, would be fully and finally realized as we stand before His glorious throne. As we look over our shoulder and say, look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and we see a slain lamb. So, what do we do? What what do we do with a world right now in turmoil? What do we do with a world in division that is divided, that is struggling? Because right now, I've talked to so many people who who struggle with the political landscape, who, who are struggling with COVID, who are stressed out, who are anxious, who have lost jobs, who have lost loved ones, and our world seems so consuming right now. And it's all filled with what ifs. What if, what if, what if, what if this goes on for another two years? What if this never ends? What if he gets elected? What if this happens? What if this policy passes? What if this person doesn't be, what if, what if, what if, what if? And when you constantly live in the anxiousness of what if, you will never experience joy today. So there are five commitments. And I think these five commitments are so important for us as followers of Jesus, of what it looks like right now to live in the midst of division. First is this, pursue unity, not division. As much as it is possible with you, live at peace with everyone. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's to stand in the middle of the tension and say, hey, there is a different way. Come follow King Jesus. Second is this, speak with kindness and compassion. Are you going to talk to people you disagree with? Yes. Are you going to talk to people that are borderline um, not intelligent people? Yes. Do it with kindness and compassion. It's okay to disagree with someone. Don't ruin your witness for Christ because of it. Because the end, the kingdom that you're fighting for, 
that kingdom won't stand. Because the kingdom of God will stand forever and ever. Number three, seek to understand others' perspectives. Have conversation with people. Don't don't just talk at people. Listen to people. As James says, be um, quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Number four, treat all people with dignity. Even people who are on the other side. Even people you would consider your enemies. Because every single person on the face of this earth bears the image of the Creator. They are made in God's image. And we are called to treat all with dignity that they deserve. Regardless of skin color, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of political beliefs and ideologies. Treat all people with dignity. And then five, walk humbly with the Spirit. Walk humbly with the Spirit. Every day, pursue Jesus and allow His Spirit to lead. Listen, does this, these five commandments, does that fix our world? It doesn't. It doesn't fix things. But God didn't call you to fix the world. He called you to witness to the world. He didn't cause you to, to cure the brokenness. He caused, called you to point to Him who heals all brokenness. We need you. Church, we need each other to stand and point to Jesus, to invite people to a different way, to a better way. Because in the end, it is the kingdom of God that will stand. It is the kingdom of God that will go on forever and ever. What John says a little bit later in Revelation is now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Christ, the Messiah. And He will reign forever and ever and ever. Don't lose sight of that promise in the midst of a blip on our radar. Is it important? Yes. Should you vote? Yes. But don't put your hope in a party, politician, or power. Put your hope in King Jesus.